Okay, I've got a question for you. What do Muji, Heli Hansen, Allbirds, and Simba all have in common? They all use Yachtpo. Yachtpo is a one-stop shop for nearly everything e-commerce brands need to grow. They started with reviews to help you convert more visitors, but they've also got a referral feature so your customers can introduce their friends to your products. You can run your loyalty scheme through Yachtpo, so when an existing customer does something like shares a product on their socials, you can give them points, which then pulls them back to your site to spend again. Oh, and you can use the SMS feature to make sure your customers actually engage with these tools, because little known fact, SMS performs much better than email in this context. So if you're in e-commerce and want better customer acquisition and retention, check out yachtpo.com secret. That's yachtpo.com secret. Now, onto the show. I was the fashion and beauty editor of OK Magazine, which is an incredibly glamorous sounding job. And I'd done it for 10 years. And it was my dream job when I got it. So back in 2003, on the 31st of March, that was my first day of work there, Ewan McGregor's birthday. So I was perfect for a celebrity magazine. And I threw myself headfirst into that role. And it became my entire identity cue the thriller music that suggests that some <laughs> there's impending doom. <laughs> That's Emma Gunn-Awardner, or Emma Guns. She's a podcaster, writer, broadcaster, and the list goes on. But between the time she was a top magazine editor and the digital media personality she is today, things went horribly wrong. From Secret Leaders, I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is our bite-sized series dedicated to failure. We're doing this because we hear about success all the time, but not its far more common sibling, failure. We want to change that with the help of entrepreneurs like Emma sharing their lowest moments. Emma had spent a decade at OK Magazine and things had begun to feel predictable. She'd plateaued, so she decided to go it alone and become a freelancer, a solopreneur, as some people call that but she'd made a big miscalculation. When you are Emma from, insert best-selling title here, things happen. People want to help you. There's a vested interest in, in whatever. And when you are just Emma, the world reacts very differently. And I think I, not I think, I definitely fell into that terrible spot where I thought that it was about me. <laughs> And it wasn't about what I could give people. So when I went freelance, one of the first things was how different it felt. Just every email, every phone call, every text felt like an open door. And then I went freelance and it was like, this, this door appears to be locked. What on earth is happening? There was a big adjustment there, actually. And there was a big need to get my ego in check. Because I'd spent 10 years where if I'd said, I need this super, like, I need this immediately, it would happen. Emma's time at OK Magazine had set her up with flawed expectations, but her move into solopreneurship didn't actually start that badly. The first phase of trying to freelance was very much about trying to build contacts, but then I was also in this position where I was trying to do consultancy. So my years of expertise meant that brands might come to me and ask for a little bit of behind-the-scenes intel or ask my opinion about certain new launches, which was another way of earning money, essentially. And I guess I would say for the first 18 months, there was a decent amount of consultancy that came in. Things like, hi, Emma, can you come in and can we have a two-hour brainstorm? What's your hourly rate? And 
I didn't know what my hourly rate was. And it's not really something a lot of people were chatting about at the time. And so what I subsequently learned is that it's quite a tactic to get a newly freelance person who doesn't know what to charge and get them in on a really low fee. I cannot tell you the amount of people, and it's a predominantly female industry that I work in, when they first say, when they first go freelance, and the first thing they will ask is, what should my hourly rate be? I have no idea. I've charged like 80 pounds. What do you think? And so it was really useful as time went on to find a group of people who were much more transparent about fees and what the going rate was and what have you. But there was an element of being buoyant and feeling somewhat successful, but also it was very scrappy. And that didn't feel very good after the security of having been on the magazine for a long time. And I had all these big ideas and I wanted to do these things. And so one of the first things that I did actually was I decided that I should start a YouTube channel because there were all these people on YouTube who were quite young, who were making loads of money and that I should do this and that this would be the way to make things happen. So I started one and I mean, to cut a very long story short, it failed miserably. And it was again, it was that thing of thinking, well, I've got this cachet, I've got all these contacts in the beauty industry, I'll just start a beauty YouTube channel. And no one cared. And actually, I remember sitting at dinner with a friend who said, until you can show me that you're selling product, I'm not going to be interested. Like, it's just as serious, just as simple as that. So I guess there was a level of arrogance that I had where I'd just been so used to, if I mentioned a product, it sold. And there was an arrogance of thinking that I had influence, but it was false influence. It wasn't me. It was a title that I worked for. Emma was being humbled, but she hadn't reached the bottom yet. There was just this four years of just constant cortisol and fear and panic running through my bloodstream at all times. And then QVC petered off. And that had been my big sort of, my big earner, if you like. And so again, scrappy, scrappy, scrappy. What can I do? What can I do? And I started saying to people, well, I can help you put together beautiful Instagram feeds for your business within the beauty space. And because I had started some big beauty companies, I'd started their Instagram and Twitter feeds. And when I say this, I mean, like I'd said, I think you should embrace Twitter. And they had sort of begrudgingly said, well, you can have £250 a month, but we're going to need a spreadsheet of 30 tweets to see all the tweets that you want to send in June. And we'll have to pre-approve them by the end of March or whatever. And it was like, "Mm, I don't really think you understand how social media works. But then neither did I. But I was just being scrappy and trying to find the need that they didn't know that they needed yet. I was just trying to be a little bit ahead of the curve. So there was all of this scrappiness. And then just to be very, very honest about it, I started the podcast, even though I had no money, I had no idea how to monetize it. And I remember at the time, YouTube had failed. I had been offered a job on a magazine. It was like a dream job as well, if you like. It was health and beauty editor of women's health. And it was a title that even when I'd been at OK and they had launched it in the, U- in the UK, when I heard that the US edition was coming over, I was like, I will do anything to get on that magazine. That is where I want to go to. That's about problem solving. That's about meaty features. I really want to get onto that. And then I did some cover there and they said, do you want the job? And they told me the salary. And I just thought, ah, I would have to drop all of my other work to be able to do it. They would then be making a loss. Do I do it for the stability? What have you? Anyway, for various reasons, I didn't take it. And I think all of that pressure of like 
social media management failing, QVC going down the toilet, YouTube failing, consultancy not taking off. And then really honestly, just this having been on this high for 10 years, okay, and then really struggling. And there were other things going on in my personal life. I had a full hit the wall breakdown. And I remember thinking, right, if I sell my car, then I can pay off two months, my notice period on my flat. And then if I move back in with my parents, now bear in mind, I would have been 38 at the time. If I move back in with my parents, then I can go and get a job in the local coffee shop. But I'll be like, I'll put pictures in the coffee shop of me with famous people. And when I'm frothing people's lattes, I'll tell them about when I went to Elton John's house. Like, I just thought that's going, that's all I'm going to be able to do now. I really thought that was it. I'm going to have to exit London. And having had those 10 amazing years, I'm going to have to, on some level, say it was, I wasn't ever good enough. Because without the buoyancy of a title, I couldn't hack it. And that was really horrible. And so all of those things and then sort of having a, a mental break and just, I remember having to say to clients, I can't do the work that I'm supposed to do for you. And I didn't want to say, because <laughs> I've reached the end of my rope. And I remember one client who I was doing social media for saying, well, you can have the rest of the week off, but we need you back on Monday. And that was almost the thing that was just like, I, I, I just can't keep doing this. This is just terrible. And it's for scrapping around for little bits of money. So I didn't sell the car. I stayed put and I got rid of all of the people that were making me desperately unhappy. So I went into therapy and just started piecing myself back together and took the pressure off a little bit and just made a calculated loss for a little while while still creating the podcast, by the way, and earning no money. So what a stupid time to start a podcast when you have no money, you have no idea how to monetize this thing, and it's such a passion project that it's taking up loads of your time. So didn't make any sense at all. I decided to raise my prices, so I got rid of the people who are only paying minimum. And then when I did start working with people and I changed my price structure completely, things started to level out because obviously I was able to have a little bit more time to piece myself back together, but I was also working but earning earning in a way that was creating less stress after four draining years that took emma to the brink she's in a much happier place now but as she looks back on that period what were the things she did that brought her out of the darkness i would say that one of the most significant moments actually was taking ownership and taking accountability and I think before I had always been expecting somebody to give me a dream job or give me a dream commission. It was always somebody else's responsibility to give me the yes, to be able to put food on my table, roof over my head, everything else. And I think one of the most crucial things I was able to piece together through lots of things, including therapy, was, oh, it's all about you. I was constantly waiting for somebody to give me a job, give me a title, tell me I was good at what I did, tell me I was okay. And actually realizing that the call has to come from within the house is one of the most empowering things because everyone that you speak to in business, whether they're a titan or whatever will say, every time I haven't listened to my gut, it's gone wrong. And I think one of the things your gut has to tell you is whether you're doing, you're okay, whether you're making the right decision. And the minute you start delegating that to an outside source, you are on a path, in my opinion, to trouble. If failure's on you, then so is success. 
Emma's proof that although we go through rough patches, we have the power to lift ourselves out of them. You've been listening to our Bite Size series on failure, and I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. If you want to hear more stories of failure, setbacks, and how they impact success, then give us a follow on your podcast app and share the episode with someone who needs to hear it. See you next time. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.